Hello and welcome to the Simple Faith Podcast, the show exploring authentic Christianity for normal people like you and me. My name is Dave Betts and over the course of the last 60 or so episodes, we've explored all the things that make our faith what it is. We've looked at things like the big picture of the Bible. We've explored tough questions that might be getting in the way of our relationships with God. Things like uh, the church and LGBT or why would God allow suffering? Where, did, where is God in depression? Things like that. We've looked at common myths in the church world and we've demystified or at least tried to demystify some really churchy words. We've uh, talked about things like what's it like to be made in the image of God and, and much, much more. We've never pretended that we have all of the definitive answers and we still aren't pretending that we have all of the definitive answers. But what we are doing is doing our very best to honour Jesus without all of the unnecessarily intellectual words and, you know, churchy stuff or churchy fluff that can sometimes muddy the waters along our journey to get to know Jesus more. Well, today in this second to last episode of the Simple Faith podcast, at least for the foreseeable future anyway, uh, we're concluding a series of episodes looking at the story of the church. We've been asking the question, well, how did the church come to be what it is today? And in the first episode of the series, we blasted through 2,000 years of history in like 20 minutes. And then we looked at the first 500 years of the church in a bit more detail before exploring the grisly Middle Ages in the third episode of the series. And then last week, we focused on this really important period for the church. It's a, a period that we know today as the Reformation. In this last episode of the series, we're going to draw our attention to the last 500 or so years of the church. But before we do, I'd really like to take one last opportunity just to promote this incredible book to you. It's a book called Church History in Plain Language by Bruce Shelley. Church History in Plain Language. It's so good. It's by far the best church history book that I've ever read. I love it. In fact, almost all of this series is based on church history in plain language. So it only feels right to give Bruce Shelley as much credit as possible. It's an excellent book. But with that in mind, let's jump into church life after the Reformation. Following the period we now call the Reformation is a period we commonly refer to as the Age of Reason. It's this period where our understanding of science radically grew and along with human reason became the new centerpiece of Western culture. It was really the birth of atheism as we know it today. And sometimes people refer to this period as the Enlightenment. And well, before the age of reason, it was just kind of assumed that you were a Christian of some sort in the Western world, or, or at the very least, you held a belief in some sort of uh, divine being. And if you're anything like me, you might have heard about uh, the Renaissance period, either in your art or music classes. And really, that word means rebirth. And uh, along with the age of reason, it was this idea of looking back to classical civilizations, for example, uh, reading classic ancient Greek philosophy and, and things like that. And you know, and reading those texts in their original languages and stuff. That stuff was really important. And along with this movement, there was a lot of religious conflicts going on as well. So you had the, the rise of the age of reason, along with this Renaissance period, this rebirth, looking at ancient classical Greek philosophy and things like that. 
But you also had these religious conflicts. So just as the Crusades had caused people to question the norms of the church, there were things like the English Civil War and the Thirty Years' War in Germany, and, and they didn't help, not to mention this kind of terrible habit the church had of burning old women at the stake for witchcraft and, you know, Spanish inquisitions and stuff like that. And then at the same time as all of this, you've got these incredible minds approaching the world of science in people like Galileo, uh, Copernicus and Isaac Newton. So you've got a change in mindset towards philosophy, art, music, and culture in general. And you've got a change in mindset towards some of the kind of darker sides of religious expression. So you've got lots of change. And then on top of that, you've got this change in mindset in the world of science. It's it's a perfect storm for a, a fundamental world shifting change. And like all change, it's rarely all or nothing. It kind of starts slowly and gathers pace. So rather than jumping straight to atheism, what happened is that Lots of people believed in a divine being like God, but simply refused to believe in a God who interfered or got involved in his creation in any way. It was called deism, and Voltaire is a really famous deist and critic of the church. So all of this stuff is going on. The cultural landscape in the Western world is shifting, but then suddenly Christianity got shot in the leg a little bit with what's often referred to as the evangelical awakening. So it's the 1730s and Great Britain and America is seeing this renewed passion to preach the gospel to those who don't know Jesus amongst this culture, this backdrop of people who are moving away from the church. And perhaps the most famous name of this period is a man called John Wesley. You might have heard that name, John Wesley. He was an exceptionally bright student and along with his brother Charles felt this uh, strong desire to place the focus on prayer and Bible reading and communion, all really good things. And uh, John Wesley was actually invited to Georgia in the United States, which was a huge deal. It was a huge excursion in the 1700s. And well, let's just say he wasn't particularly popular once he arrived. He described the Americans as gluttons, thieves, liars and murderers, which, let's be honest, isn't ideal. And the Americans found him rigid and stuffy. And I mean, on the plus side, the Brits and the Americans still view each other in exactly the same way, at least. I mean, I'm kidding. That's not really true. But uh, it's not a great way to start, is it, when you head to the States? If I headed to North America and acted the same way as a Brit who moved here, that would not be a great thing. Well, Wesley got a bit distracted over a girl who chose his rival over him. So he stopped her from being able to take communion. And then this girl's new husband sued him. And honestly, it sounds like something from a youth group or something like that. It's pretty childish and intense. But anyway, Wesley flees the country and lands back in England in 1738. And it seems like his ministry life is over. But a young preacher called George Whitfield, who was famous for his super, super loud voice and great preaching, begs Wesley to come and join him in ministry. And Wesley goes to Bristol and tons of people are saved. And it's the beginning of what we now know as the Methodist revival and the birth of what we know today as the Methodist church. It gave Wesley so much confidence. In fact, it gave him all the confidence that he needed to continue to preach the gospel passionately and powerfully, whether in jails or inns or ships or amphitheaters. Sometimes he was mobbed or beaten up, but he continued anyway. He had this new passion to preach the gospel. And his brother Charles wrote over 7,000, catch that, 7,000 hymns for the Methodist movement. And apparently, by the time John Wesley died, there were 79,000 Methodists in England and 40,000 in North America. And while all this is happening, 
A man called Jonathan Edwards is experiencing a powerful move of God himself in Massachusetts as well. And it's, it's a pretty huge deal. It's a huge revival. So while the age of reason was growing, the church was by no means extinguished. There would be challenges for sure, but God was on the move. Now, when I was a, a music student, I studied history in light of musical periods. And as a history student, I studied the past looking an awful lot at governments and monarchies and stuff like that. And as a theology student, I've spent a lot of time studying the church. And as a philosophy student, I've looked at changes in history through the eyes of philosophical thinking. Well, the reality is really none of this stuff can be separated. It's this tangled mess of stuff where each sphere influences the other, as we've kind of already seen already. So the American Revolution in the 1770s and the French Revolution in the late 1700s are two examples of events that profoundly influenced many different areas, not just the political spheres, it influenced the church too. You know, there were tons of different factors that play in the French Revolution, for example. But fundamentally, the French common folk wanted to be free of what they saw as the tyranny of religion and monarchies. And after yet another dark period of fighting and bloodshed, the church really had forever lost its position of power. And the ripples from that moment really echoed throughout the world. And the 1800s were characterized by uh, not French revolutions, but industrial revolutions, particularly in, uh, in Britain, in the UK. The, the British Empire was flourishing and its navy was dominating the seas. And by 1914, Great Britain ruled the largest empire the world has uh, ever seen and had ever seen to that point. And and during this period, there were some really great Christian men like William Wilberforce. William Wilberforce was radically converted and just couldn't reconcile the idea of slavery with biblical values. And so he dedicated his life to the abolition of slavery. And it took many decades, but four days before Wilberforce died, the Emancipation Act, freeing slaves across the empire, was declared. It's a good thing. It's a good period in the history of the church as a Christian man stands up against something so wrong. And it was also during this time, while the British Empire was flourishing, that the missionary movement exploded into life. There were some courageous, incredible explorer missionaries like David Livingston, who declared the gospel throughout Africa. William Carey, who shared Jesus in India. And Hudson Taylor, who took the good news of Jesus to China. And to be honest, this doesn't do justice to the thousands upon thousands upon thousands of nameless missionaries who quietly shared Jesus around the world at, at such a huge cost. In fact, there were many who lost their lives sharing the gospel. And it's often hard for us as 21st century believers who live in a pretty globalized world to understand, well, the enormity of what these people did for the Christian faith is actually really remarkable. And maybe you've noticed this this weird split happening here. You know, on the one hand, you've got the world becoming increasingly secular, but on the other, you've got great revivals and missionary movements happening. It's this weird but interesting time where uh, it really leads to the beginnings of what we see today. You know, a really secular world who has little interest in Jesus, but at the same time, passionate followers of Jesus who call themselves Christians, not because of their family ties or cultural baggage or anything like that, but because they genuinely want to serve Jesus and see God move miraculously. At least, I think that's true of the, the Western world, if it's not true of the rest of the world. 
for sure. Anyway, jumping back to this industrial revolution that we were talking about, you suddenly have steam engines powering the manufacture of textiles and um, and powering factories and things like that. We have steam engines driving locomotives and ships and the world looks very different. Rather than small town, rural agricultural life, people are flocking to the cities to find jobs in the factories. And uh, the industrial revolution massively increased the wealth of mankind, which enabled them to put more time into studies and into sciences and things like that. But it came at a really quite significant cost. You know, the factory conditions, as I'm sure you know, were disgusting. Children were put to work, some as young as four or five years of age, which is just hard to even imagine. People worked for like 12 to 15 hours a day, every day, seven days a week for minimum wage. And it sounds like something out of a Charles Dickens novel, which is fair because actually he was very, very outspoken against some of these abuses that were taking place. And yeah, there were challenges for sure, but it was really in the 20th century, the next century, where the global landscape changed for good. When we think of the 20th century, perhaps the most obvious events are the First and Second World Wars. You know, these are definitely huge, world-changing moments in history. But in the West, one of the, the biggest shift was a move away from the traditional major religions to three post-Christian ideas. So the idea of nationalism, the idea of communism, and individualism. So nationalism, communism, and individualism. So nationalism says that the ultimate cause is your country. Communism says, actually, what we want to do is address the struggles of the disparity between rich and poor that had been really exacerbated during the Industrial Revolution. And individualism is that idea that what matters more than anything in the world is yourself and doing what's right for you alone. And in the early 1900s, to be honest, it was all about nationalism. This is what fed into World War I in 1914 and then World War II a few decades later. You know, the level of bloodshed and gore and violence is so hard to even comprehend today. You know, Adolf Hitler in particular showed the world perhaps the ultimate example of someone fueled by hatred and by a thirst for power. And he even forced a reinvention of Christianity where the Nazi Jesus wasn't actually Jewish so that then they could encourage Germans to hate and persecute the Jews. It's, it's ridiculous. It's crazy. And it's heartbreaking. It was all about race and nationalistic thinking. And well, as we know, eventually the Nazis were overcome, but the cost was extraordinarily high. Thousands of churches were destroyed. Uh, pastors were brutally murdered, as well as, you know, many other civilians. Millions lost their lives with the inventions of things like tanks and uh, airplanes and bombers and guided missiles and even atomic bombs. And people began to ask really important questions about faith. Where was God in all of this carnage? How would a good God allow such evil to take place? Church attendance dropped after the war and the world became decidedly, notably, importantly, more secular. And this raises a really interesting discussion. You see, the last 120 years or so are most commonly described as the most bloody in the history of mankind. And yet, interestingly enough, it's also the most secular. So while it's, it's totally fair to ask those tough questions like, where was God in all of these wars? It's also fair to ask a similar question, which is, would these wars have happened if people had remained faithful to the God 
of the Bible? It's a really hard question. And to be honest, it's not one that I have any intention of trying to answer. It's too tough for the purposes of this episode. But importantly, there were more wars. There were cold wars. There were wars in Korea, in Vietnam, and in the Gulf. And there was lots of fighting and bloodshed going on. Neil Armstrong left footprints on the moon in 1969. And through all of this, the church continued. In fact, despite the church's definite decline in the West, the church has flourished in the world outside of it. In fact, there are more believers in the world now than at any point before in the history of humanity. And even in the West, people were coming to know Jesus in new and radical ways. There was a man called Billy Graham, who you might have heard of, who preached to countless people around the world. The Pentecostal denomination came out of a three-year-long revival in 1906 in Los Angeles. And in the last century, the Catholic Church began to show signs of change. Now, of course, as with every other week, there is so much more to talk about. We've seen how the church has grown from the apostles watching Jesus ascend to the heavens to being a central part of the Roman Empire. We've seen it split into the Catholic and Orthodox churches, and we've seen the Catholic church split again after the Reformation into Catholics and Protestants. Over the years, we've seen the rise to power and relative fall of the popes and the impact of the age of reason. We've seen the devastating impact of wars and the impact of movements like the Baptist movement, the Methodist movement, the Anglicans, and many, many more. And in the time that we have left, I thought it'd be really cool to talk about where the church is now. I think that's important. You know, we're in this weird place where the church is flourishing, perhaps more than ever before. But in the Western world, it just doesn't feel like that's the case. You know, after COVID-19, especially, the world looks very different. You know, I found a bunch of studies while I was writing a paper recently that tell us that there is much less trust in the world after COVID. There's greater division over things like politics and societal norms. Divorce rates are higher. Social interaction, travel and work have fundamentally changed. Basically, the world looks really different. And in a book called The Post-Quarantine Church, a guy called Tom Rayner says that it'll be a while before we realize just how much this whole season has impacted the global psyche. And I think he's right about that. In other words, what's happened is a really big deal. And we're still figuring out just how much of a big deal it really is. So I hope you take that away is that actually what's happened during COVID is huge and there isn't a normal to return to. Life is going to look different now. So the question is, what will the world look like going forward? Well, I can only speculate. So what I'll give you is my best guess, but I want to share some of the stuff that I've studied recently in anticipation of this season. I think it's this. I think the world is becoming increasingly individualistic. We've talked about that on uh, a previous episode on culture. You know, the individualistic meaning you do what's right for you and I'll do what's right for me. The problem is the Bible tells us that that won't work in the long run. There is this objective sense of right or wrong. In other words, an objective morality. And it comes from living in line with God's will. You know, what people need more than ever is community, not more individualism. And most importantly, they need God. I suspect that churches that flourish in this new post-COVID season won't be the flashy, performancy, snazzy mega churches. Maybe I'm wrong, but I think it will be the churches who place a high value on community, a high value on relationship, and a high value on the good news, the gospel of Jesus. With so much happening and so much distrust in the world, what will really matter, I think, is that church becomes a safe 
honorable, God-glorifying place that operates with love, kindness, and integrity without compromising on truth. I don't know about you, but that's the kind of church that I want to be a part of. There's a huge opportunity now and in the future for the church in this post-COVID world to uh, learn from the mistakes of our forefathers and also learn from their victories too. You know, what church history consistently tells us um, over and over and over again is that God doesn't use the proud and the mighty for his purposes. We see that all throughout the Bible. In fact, he often opposes them. No, actually, God uses the humble. He uses the devoted followers of Jesus. He uses the people who love him for his purposes. You know, Micah 6, 8 says, what does the Lord require of you to act justly, to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God? After all, the church was never really about us anyway. It's always been about God. Well, as we step forward into this new post-COVID reality, let's keep it that way. Let's keep the focus on God alone. None of the shiny and flashy stuff. Let's build a community of Jesus followers. Uh, That's what I'm longing to see, and I hope you are too. My prayer is that you found this series on church history helpful and, you know, interesting. And as always, if you have any questions, please don't hesitate to send us an email at simplefaithpodcast at gmail.com. That's simplefaithpodcast at gmail.com. And in the meantime, thank you again for journeying through this series with me. Next week is a really big one. It's the Simple Faith Podcast's last episode for the foreseeable future. I'm going to be joined again by my wife, Shreya, the original co-host of the show, to talk about the Simple Faith Podcast adventure. We're going to talk about some of the highs. We're going to talk about some of the lows, some of the things we've learned. And where do we go from here? I really hope that you will stick with us for one more episode. Until then, have an amazing week and I will speak to you very soon. Bye.